All right, here we go. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. So last week we started Luke 22. We went through 38 verses and it was quite a chapter, wasn't it? I mean, you know, you start with the fact that, you know, those those um, chief priests and these rulers, the synagogue rulers, these religious men are still so determined to kill Jesus. And then you have the sentence where Satan enters Judas. And we talked about that, that, you know, we can take comfort and security in the fact that when we've been to the cross and we have been filled with God's Holy Spirit, that there is no way Satan can enter us. Now, he can still, he can still maneuver us around. He can still do all his tricks. He can dangle um, our flesh, the flesh bait of our own self in front of us, which we love to bite into because we much would rather go what our self wants, wants to get pulled to and what will appease the flesh for the now. But he can do all that. But, you know, he, he just absolutely has no power over us and, unless we let him. So he cannot possess us. And that, to me, is such a great victory. But then Jesus went from there and um, even though it was such a heartbreaker when you saw Satan enter Judas and how in the world could he do such a thing to Jesus? But, you know, it's, it was his choice. He had, he had many opportunities. We're even going to see another one tonight. He had another opportunity to, to change his mind, to, to be different, to open up his heart and to open up those spiritual eyes and ears before it was too late. He had a chance. And then you watch Jesus want to celebrate that Passover with his disciples for the last time. And and literally, it was the last Passover. There was no need for Passover anymore because um, Jesus was the Passover. And he he is the, the unblemished lamb. It is his blood that the Father will accept to cover over all of sin. But he wanted to do, and he wanted to do the like the Old Testament Passover one more time, and and then it's like he transitioned into the Lord's Supper because we saw and went over it last week that Exodus 12 really followed the command that God said to Moses, "I want you to." I want you to um, commemorate this. I want you to do this every year because every year your children are going to be getting older. Every year, you know, new generations start and all that. And I want to make sure that not only you remember how God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians, but I want you to tell your children you know, when they ask questions of why you're doing what you're doing, why are we eating this kind of food? And you have a chance to tell them the story of redemption and deliverance. And then, you know, the, the story of the Red Sea. I mean, just so many stories that show who God is and his love and his care for the Israelites and leading them along the way. And we said last week too how what a what a what a sad story when you get into Judges two in those dark chapters when you know that after Joshua died there is an there is an 
that next generation never even heard of those stories. And, you know, that is a, a real prick, isn't it? Because how are they going to know unless we're going to tell them? And if we start slacking off for whatever justifiable reason we think we have, then the next generation is not going to hear. And, and I think as Jesus is now transitioning from the Passover now to the Lord's Supper, and he says, okay, now, this is what I want you to do from now on. I want you to take this bread, and I want you to remember that this is my body broken for you. Now, do this to remember that. And then with the juice, with the wine, this is my blood that was shed for you. You know, you remember that. And, and again, tell the story. Tell the next generation. Make sure that those children know what this represents and the cost that there was so that they would have the opportunity to have salvation and redemption. And then, and then as, you know, as, as Jesus is you know, talking that, that serious, you know, beautiful story and about the new covenant and that, that transition, then he says, um, and one of you, one of you is going to betray me. And, you know, I'm sure those, those disciples, those 11, are, are trying to process this, all this new information from Passover to Lord's Supper to, you know, and now what? One of us is going to betray you? And, and then right after that, they get in this dispute about who's going to be the greatest. Imagine that. But that's what self looks like. Who's going to be the greatest in this life? Who's going to get the most recognition? Who's going to be the most popular? And, you know, they're all vying for that spot. And Jesus gives them a big, huge surprise. In one gospel, he hauls out a basin of water and says, sit down, I'm going to wash your feet. This is what greatness looks like. You're willing to put yourself aside, and you're willing to serve. And, but Luke, even though Luke doesn't tell that story, he tells another great story about, you know, he kind of compares you know, greatness is like like the youngest. It's like the the social outcast. It's the one who doesn't have a whole lot to offer. It's one that in in society you look down on because you know they're they're not worth a whole lot. And Jesus said, No, I want you to know that the greatest is the is the one willing who's not all puffed up in themselves because they know what I have done and they are willing to serve. It's like what Paul said, in view of God. God's grace and mercy for us, you know, the, the least we can do, the best thing we can do to say thank you is offer ourselves back to him as a living sacrifice, that service. And then remember we saying, I will serve thee because I love thee. I mean, no, no ulterior motive. I serve you because you deserve it, because you are worthy of it. I serve you because I love you for doing it for me, because I'd be lost and hellbound and absolutely waking up every morning with no purpose at all. I mean, it's, you changed all that for me. So I love you because of that. You've given life to me. I was nothing before you found me. And, you know, that's what Jesus wants us to see. And, and then it's like after he was talking about that, and then I think he got the shivers. I think he, he got a cold thing, a little, a little something chilly that went through him, the reality of what was ahead, because he went, Simon, Simon, you know, called his name twice. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I am praying for you. 
I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. And when you come back, go tell the brethren. That verse is loaded. You know, we got on the subject about, you know, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I am praying for you. And I took you to Job 1, and I think it was quite enlightening for all of us to really see how God is so in control that even even though Satan is the God of this world, even he has to ask permission to tempt us. Now, I showed you in James 1, God would never tempt us. But as we saw in Job 1, remember it says that the angels came to praise the Lord, and all of a sudden here comes Satan, and, and God says, where did you come from? I mean, so it's very, it's very clear that as of now, Satan can still get into heaven. That's why someday we're going to have a new one after, after he has been cast into hell and all evil is banished. But until then, he can, he can get back up there. And, and God said to him, where did you come from? Oh, I came from earth. I've been prowling around, you know. I've been going to and fro. And, and God knows what he's doing. He's trying to see who he can get. And then even God said, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. He's righteous. He's upright. Have you considered? And I'm looking at that, and I'm sure when we read it last week, we thought, what? It's one thing when he, you know, diseases the angel of light and all this kind of thing, but here it is God saying, have you considered? I mean, he put the idea in his head. And that didn't seem right to me, but this is, you know, the, in all of this explanation, it just makes such good sense because... You know, it shows that God still, he would never tempt, but he allows Satan to, because now he is going to give us the choice to whether we're going to let this temptation take us down to hopelessness, or is, are we, or is this going to be a test that we then reach out? And the best way I can explain that is right from the Job story, because Satan said, oh, sure, it's easy for Job to praise you. He's probably raising his hand, just praising you. Well, yeah, you've given him everything. Everything he touches, you know, turns to gold. And so... You know, and then, then Satan went on to say, and and uh, but I bet if I started getting in there and started taking things away, I bet he would curse you to your face. And God said to him, okay, all right, go try it. So he gave him full reign, except he said, you can only go so far. See, now while he gave Satan permission to, to do this to Job, he said, but you can't touch him. You can take everything away, but you can't touch him. He still holds, he still holds the power to cut it off. And I picture right then that God started praying for Job. Just like he said to Peter. The temptation is gonna be laid out, and we know that all of his children were killed, all his all his livelihood, all his flocks were destroyed, and there stood just he and his wife. And they were in trauma and, and hurt and pain, probably like none of us can ever imagine to have everything taken from you. But what an opportunity for you and I, when we are in our crisis, to be able to look at this and say, okay, when things, when things start coming at me, is this going to be a temptation of Satan to try to pull me away so that I will fall into the pit of despair and hopelessness, and I'm down, and I'm defeated, and I'm discouraged? Or am I going to choose 
to hear God's voice through the power of his spirit remind me of who he is and what he will do, like never leave, never forsake, that he will help us through this. Because look, at you have, you have the two, the same pain, the same hurt, the same catastrophe, and you've got, you've got Job's wife that turns and says to her husband, ah, curse God and die. It's just, this is too much. I curse God and die. And I can see the look on her face. She's mad. She's angry. She's bitter. She's probably shaking her fist in God's face. Just curse him and die. And we have that choice. And then the contrast is, See, she fell into temptation because that's what self thinks we deserve. We deserve, after all that, we deserve to fall into that, that kind of mood, that kind of hopelessness, after all. But instead, Job took it as a test of God, and look what, look what he was able to do. He trusted, even though he didn't like it. He, he didn't understand it. I'm sure he's asking, why would this happen? I'm sure he had, but instead, his solution was, I'm going to hold on tight. I'm going to trust. He said, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't think I'll ever forget that. And those two helped me to see, okay, which way? When the crisis hits, which way am I going to go? Both are, both are available. And so, you know, so when he said, Peter, and again, don't, for, don't forget that even though God gives permission to say, to tempt us, he's already starting to pray for us so that we will turn to him and know that this is a test, a test that in James 1, it says in verse 12, that God does test us. He does do that. He wants to make sure that we're not just a bunch of hot air, that we just aren't one of those church, you know, pew fillers. And he wants to make sure that we mean what we are so good at professing. He wants to see our faith in action. And then what that test can, can move us into such a, a different direction. And then... He knows, he knows that Peter, his faith is going to falter, but it's not going to fail. And we're going to see that tonight. But then he says, Peter, you're going to be able to use this. You're going to be able to tell people that you've been there. You made, you made a big mistake, but you, you, were, you repented and you were forgiven. And this is what I do best. You go tell the brethren that. Because so many think that what they've done, they could never be forgiven of that he could never use them again after what they've done. You go tell the brethren, because look what Peter is able to do upon this rock. I built my church. I mean, you can see after he was reinstated, God can still use us. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go to you, go with you to prison and to death. You know, he, he meant well, and, but... We know what happened, and we'll see that tonight. So anyway, then finally he says, 
he finally says to them, all right, now, before I told you I'm sending you out, you don't have to take another pair of shoes, you don't have to take any more, you don't have to take any money, um, you don't have to, but he says, things are changing. Now I'm going to send you out as apostles, you're going to bring this gospel to the world. This world is not going to get any better, it's just going to keep getting worse, and so I want you prepared, I want you fortified, I want you ready. And see, they're thinking all the physical, you know. I mean, he even says, if you don't have a sword, sell your coat and buy a sword. I mean, he's just giving them a visual that it is not. He knows how the majority of them are going to die. And so it is going to be a hard road for them. And he is so up and honest with us. I know some people, I think, give the illusion that come to Jesus and your life will be wonderful and you will never have any more problems again. And I'm thinking, I know I look at Judy, she's rolling her eyes. I think just the opposite. You come to Jesus and you better know he's going to start testing because he wants you stronger. So it doesn't become easier. But you're going you're gonna to have a, such a different kind of life that's so much better that you wouldn't want to change for anything. So he said to them, when, when, when they said, oh, yeah, no worries, we got two swords here. Look, we got two swords. And Jesus' answer to that was, that's enough. It's not that the swords were going to be sufficient. He's saying, and, and we're not going to talk about this anymore. I have told you everything that you need to know. Now that's enough. And then Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, that was such a special place, the Mount of Olives, for this group to have intimate conversation. And he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He knows what's ahead. He knows that Satan himself has been nipping at his heels since the temptation in the first part of Luke. Satan never really left him. I mean, he left him for a time, but you can always see that Satan was just always nipping at his heels, just like he does with us. He he keeps wanting to wear us down. He keeps wanting to get us to fall to our own self, where then he gets the victory. But he says, pray. And that word prayer, I mean, I mean, you can close your eyes and fold your hands and pray to him in that intimate way as many times of the day as you want, but you know it can't be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So this whole idea of prayer, I think it's like an umbrella that's over us, that we need to keep over us because it is that connection and that that time, that personal time of closing your eyes and folding your hands, and pr- that is so special, but it's underneath the umbrella. It's part of prayer, but it's not all of prayer. Prayer basically is staying connected to them, connected to your power source, because you and I are not stronger than Satan, the tempter. But we, we do have a greater power within us that is so much stronger than Satan. And we can, that's why we said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that's too great, even though we might think, well, I beg to differ. No, no temptation is too great if we look to the Lord for our way of escape, because that's that's our power source that is greater than Satan himself. But so often, when we are not connected then we're not listening to the Spirit and we're not, and we fall into temptation. So Jesus is going to use that word 
pray again. That's so vital that we stay connected. I think he's saying, I certainly need to be connected. How many times didn't we see Jesus going off and again praying to his father and staying connected? I think he's telling his, his disciples turning apostles, you better, stay, you better stay prayed up, you better stay connected because you are going to need it. Otherwise, you're not going to make it either because life is tough. And I think he's speaking the same message to you and I. Stay connected to him or you are going to drift and you are going to wander and that is going to take you down a path that you don't want to go on. So pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He withdrew. We, we can picture, don't we, in Gethsemane that Jesus kind of sets himself apart. He wants to get away for, and, and here it was a stone's throw. And I don't know what a stone's throw is. So I looked it up and biblically it's about 33 feet. Just a little tidbit that you know, that Jesus moved about 33 feet away so not that far, but just far, far enough. And he knelt down and prayed. So what Luke wrote in those few words there are very important that we know. He knelt down because that's not the stance of a, a Jewish prayer. Usually they stand. They usually stand when they pray. And here we see Jesus knelt down. I mean, remember the story he told about the Pharisee who came into the center of everybody and kind of puffed up and said, oh, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like that person right here. And then you see that publican who doesn't even come into the center of everybody, doesn't feel worthy at all. And he is on his knees saying, Lord, help me. Get, have mercy on me a sinner. See, when you get that picture of the reason for the knelt here, especially for Jesus, is the fact that he, this was an intense suffering here. This was a, a very critical time that he was just kind of laying himself prostrate out there. So, yes, it was very much severe, severe um, a feeling of of, of suffering. And then it said he prayed this, Father, if you are willing, if you are willing. I look at this prayer that I hear so many times, and you do too, but I looked at it different this time. I thought, oh, that's the way I want to come to Jesus. Because usually, you know, I have, especially if I have something major, then I come to him and I'll say, Father, but I omit that if you are willing. Instead, I say, Father, this is how I would just like it to go. And for Jesus to be able to start by saying, Father, if you are willing, he starts right off the bat. If you are willing, take this cup from me. And I, for all my life, I think, I thought that when he said, take this cup from me, I thought he meant the whole, this whole crucifixion thing. If, if you can come up with any other way that, that the people can be redeemed, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, but it is not that. I don't think Jesus was a chicken. I don't think he was afraid of death or pain. The whole thing about... The cup is, when he said, take this cup, 
the cup, and I, I have proof. I mean, from, from there's a verse in Psalms, there's a verse in Isaiah, there's a verse in Jeremiah 25 that it talks about the cup, and the cup is, it's not death, it's the cup of God's wrath and judgment. See, that's how God looks at sin, that sin's got to be dealt with, and it's going to be through his wrath and through judgment if it's not dealt with through the blood. So when Jesus said, take this cup from me, I think he, well, I don't think, I know. I know that he knew that he was going to be taken on all of your sins, all of my sins, and there was going to be a time that he would shout out, Father, why have you forsaken me? I think that was part of what he, that is what he dreaded the most. He dreaded the fact that the cup represented wrath and it represented judgment. But for you and I, when you, you and I look at that, you know, it is, it, it's said just exactly right because Jesus took on God's wrath and God's judgment so that we wouldn't have to. So you and I will never have to deal with God's wrath or his judgment for our sin because our sins have been bought and paid for with the blood. So that's what Jesus just really wanted removed, if possible. Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I think this was, I mean, this whole story here was timed perfectly. And this was like Jesus given his final surrender. Okay, because you know what he got? He got a no answer. When he asked the question, take this cup from me, the answer was no. Now, I think that really bears thinking about because so often when we pray, we are so determined if we pray hard enough or if we get enough people, we're going to get what we want. But sometimes God's answer and we have to remember, he is hearing every one of our requests. He's hearing every one of them. But he's going to answer every one of them as well. The only thing is, it's not always going to be yes. And if you ever want to look at what a no answer looks like, this is your best one right here. God said no to his own son. Nope. And when he says no to you and I, it is an answer. And it's because he knows what's best and what is going to be necessary for you and I to get where we need to get in our relationship with him. Sometimes he loves us too much to say yes. He's got to say no. But then when he does say no, do you think that you and I are willing to be able to say, like Jesus not my will, but yours. I trust you. I may not like it or understand it, but I trust you. I'll go through with it because my life is not about me anymore. Now, the beautiful thing here is that when God gives a no answer, when he does say no, it's not like, and I don't mean to be silly, I'm just trying to make a point. He doesn't say nope and good luck to you. 
You know, he doesn't. When he says no answer, he has got a reason, and he will also remind us that he will see to it that we have the strength and him to walk through us, through with us, through it all. I mean, this is where when you get a no answer, and you just know you have to reach out to him, and you need to go somewhere in your Bible. And that's why I keep saying, keep a bookmark in Isaiah 43 because there's just no better place for you to start than to hear the Lord say to you because you can put your name in there. I have, I, have, I have formed you. I've created you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. And when I say no, I just added that. I don't mean to add to scripture. But when you go through the water and when you go through the floods and when you go through the rivers, when you go through those times, I'm there. Because look at in verse 43, when he said no to Jesus. Look at, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. See, he doesn't just say, well, hope the best, hope the best for you. I mean, no, I say no to you because it's what I need to say to you, but you won't go through it alone. I will be there. And being in anguish, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, you know, Dr. Luke, I'm sure that was a fascinating when he heard that. I bet he thought, whoa, that was something. I wonder how that works. You know, and so maybe he's thinking, yeah, it really wasn't blood, but it was like blood, or maybe his medical mind, because I did find that there is, there is time, there are times that people can sweat, and it's, it is like blood. And the name is, because you know the study of blood is hematology or what it was, you know, something like that. I have to look here. And, and so the condition is called hematridosis. Hematridosis. It is when, it is when you sweat and you are just experiencing excruciating um, stress and anxiety. And if you sweat during that time, See, what happens is, by your sweat glands, there are tiny little blood vessels. And when you have that much pressure from your stress and your intense struggle, that those little teeny, frail little blood vessels can burst. And then they kind of work themselves into the sweat glands. And so if by chance you do sweat during those times, it will appear because the sweat, those little tiny blood vessels have gotten into, little drops have gotten into the sweat glands. Just call me Dr. Linnell. I think, I think, I think we learned, I thought that was quite an interesting factor there because because, yes, it could have been as simple as that, you know, it was such an intense sweat that it almost looked like. But, but yet, for it to look like blood, it had to have a different reddish cast. And so, medically, you know, medically, there, there are answers. So, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. They were, they were exhausted. Now, 
I, I never saw this before. I don't know about you either, but and maybe it's just a version thing, and my version says this, but but it helped me to understand that so often we can fall asleep for different reasons. And I always assumed that they fell asleep because it was late at night, they had a big day, and they were tired. But the fact that it says that they fell asleep because they were exhausted from sorrow, it got me thinking that sometimes our life conditions are such that, again, we are in such a state of sorrow. And, you know, what what happens sometimes when, when you are in such a state? It can just take you into such a down place, into a dark place. And when you when you are in such a distress and you're just so down and defeated and discouraged and and I even dare say the word depressed. You just you're just watching yourself. It seemed like it just gets darker and darker. And, and what happens? What's the easiest thing to do when you're in that state? I mean, we talk about, there's times, don't you, that you just want to um, put the covers over your head and you just don't want to deal with the day. So I got thinking, you know, it's kind of like a way of escape. And you know the, the disciples, even though they don't understand it all, I think the reality of the fact that Jesus is truly going to leave them, even though he said to them, three days later, I'm going to rise. But they are just so caught up. He's actually leaving us. And he's now showed us that it is not going to be a pretty picture here to the one that we love. And they have gotten themselves exhausted with sorrow. I think the thing is, it's just easier to sleep. I mean, some people turn to alcohol, some people turn to drugs or whatever. But Just get me out of this. Get me out of this. In whatever way, I can can escape this for a while. And a lot of times, sleep, you do that. If I just go to sleep, I won't have to deal with this for a while. Look at Jesus' answer when he got back. And he saw that they were asleep. Why? Why? He said, why are you sleeping? That's why it wasn't just because they were tired because it was late at night and because they had a busy day. No, if he would have known, I mean, if that were the case, he wouldn't have said, why are you sleeping? He knew. He knew the real reason they were sleeping. He, He knew what was behind that. And so look what he says. Get up. It sounds like he doesn't have any compassion, but he's not in this state. I don't want you in this state. I want you to get up right now and look what he said to do instead. I want you to pray. And what did he say just verses before? I want you to keep connected to me so that you do not fall into temptation. That you, that you don't listen to Satan's voice just saying, well, you deserve to have this bad day. You deserve to feel like this. You have it coming to you. No, he said, you get up and you turn to me. And I am more powerful and I can give you everything you need to get through this next minute. And then the next hour. And then the day. And then before you know it, you made made it through another day. Because you are looking to me and you're listening to my voice. And the Holy Spirit's job is to help you recall what you know to be true and what I have promised you. 
That's what he says. You get up, and I want you to pray so that you do not fall into temptation. That's the second time he said this. How quick and easy we fall to temptation, and it's because we disconnect because of our circumstances. Okay, while he was still speaking, so while they're having that intimate conversation there on the Mount of Olives, all of a sudden, here comes this crowd. They came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Now, I know that that was going to be the identifying symbol of, okay, when I kiss him on the cheek, then you know that's the one you want to get. That's Jesus. And that, that really broke my heart because I don't know about you, but I'm not flipping with my kisses, are you? And I mean, boy, there's nothing better than when someone kisses me on the cheek and I know that it's a, it's a, it's a symbol of love and acceptance and glad to be with you, glad to know you, glad to see you. You know, I mean, there is nothing more precious than that. So don't even try giving me a kiss if you don't mean any of that. Because it isn't flippant. And I think that you see this with Jesus too. Because I think that the way the disciples and Jesus would interacted for three years, I bet they were kissing each other on the cheek all the time. I really do. And that intimate approach, that connection... Because look at, look at, he said, Judas, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? That endearing way of expression? And you're using it to betray the son of man? I think it broke Jesus' heart too. And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? I have to admit, I did laugh out loud when I read that because I can just, I can just picture him because didn't Jesus just say, now I want you prepared. I want you to have your sore ready because things aren't going to get any better. I'm sure they thought, boy, I heard him, but I didn't expect so quick. So whatever reason, they've got their swords ready. And of course... You know, Luke doesn't mention Peter's name, but we know it's Peter. I mean, it's just obviously Peter, because that's what Peter did. He does things like this. He reacts, and then he thinks. That was just his personality. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And I'm sure Dr. Luke was thinking, Boy, I bet that was a bloody mess. I mean, you know, Dr. Luke is probably thinking about, you know, what that must have looked like in one slice of the sword, and there, there lays the, the ear on the ground, you know. But I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And I know this is like a little rabbit trail, but more importantly, I want you to see the comparison of the new covenant, how even Peter is going to be such a demonstration of the new covenant. And when you turn to Acts chapter 2, it's a long chapter, and I'm not going to read it all, but it starts with Pentecost and how that changed everything. And how it changed Peter from being that impulsive, quick, non-thinker. And it probably, and we're going to see later in, in this chapter that we're studying tonight, is that 
Peter is going to do a lot of changing. He's going to change from, you know, like we're going to read that he, he was there, but he was in the distance. We're going to know that, that he was even afraid of a little girl. We're going to see that this impulsive, you know, quick mouth and quick reactive person, all of a sudden, after Pentecost, and, you know, after his mistake, after being reinstated, and then had being filled with God's Spirit, you know, we're going we're gonna to do Peter tonight for sure, but I just have to throw this in this morning. Jason spoke at Rosewood, and, you know, you heard him when he was here, and this morning, he was, he was just talking, and his heart was just so exposed. And, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my word, can the Lord change people? Because I look at that child, and I think of the trouble that he caused Tom and I. I, I couldn't help but think how many times I was at his bed pleading with the Lord on his behalf for his salvation as he got older. And I realized that something could happen to him any minute, and he was lost. And I'm looking at him this morning, and I was just so taken again by, by the fact that Jesus can change a life. When they get to the point of realization, and that's what we, we never give up praying for them and surrendering them over to the Lord. And letting the Lord do what he has to do to somehow wake them up. But when he does, I always say, when Jesus got Jason around the neck, he never looked back. And then to hear how a life can be changed. But, but with Peter, it's so, it's so exciting. And I think we can see that with our own life, that when the Holy Spirit takes over us, we can do, we are able to do what we never thought possible. Because look at in verse 14, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven. This is a far cry from being out in the distance. He is now standing up in front of the crowd. He raised his voice. He addressed them. And he said, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I don't think that he had a bunch of notes there. I think the Holy Spirit, he had once learned this, who knows how many years ago, but the Holy Spirit, just when Peter needed it, helped him recall the prophecy of Joel, and out it comes. And then in verse 21, he says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Does this sound like a timid man? Does this, does this sound like a man who's afraid of what's going to happen to him? Oh, no, this is such a contrast. He is not at all concerned about what they think of him or what they might do to him, because look what he says. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose, and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I think that took nerve. 
He's pointing his finger right at him. You did that to him. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then verse 36, this is the point. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, I mean, when they heard from verse 14 on, Peter was nonstop confident, assured of the truth, experienced. I'll tell you, when Jesus said, I want you to now go tell the brethren, this is exactly what God had in mind, that he would stand up and be this bold. And it must have been, the words were so convicting, he's under the power of God's spirit. It said, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I mean, we know that it doesn't mean save yourself because you can save yourself. We can't save ourselves. He's saying, take this gospel message that you're hearing and do something with it. So it can save you from being pulled into the corruption of this generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Look at in, in Luke 22, he's cutting off the ear. In Acts chapter 2, he's preaching with such boldness that the message cuts the people right to the heart. Now, that's the kind of cutting you want. But all because of what Peter experienced and then, of course, the filling of the Spirit. Okay, now back to Luke 22. So, of course, Jesus, you know, when that happened, Jesus answered, verse 51, no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, he said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? You know, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, I'm only one guy here, and you're coming with all these crowds, and you're coming with all this, you know, these weapons and what did you think was going to happen? But I think down deep, even though they're cold-hearted and they want to kill Jesus, and every one of us have been created to know. I mean, that's the way he set it up. He created us that we would not be content or satisfied. It makes perfect sense. That's why people never have enough until they find Jesus. So even though these men are so cold-hearted and want to see Jesus dead, there is that piece of them that just kind of knows. And they also, we've read many times in the weeks that they were afraid of the people. I mean, they were afraid of what Jesus was saying and, and the people were believing it and they were afraid that they were losing their authority and their leverage and all this kind of thing. So they came ready. They came thinking, if they're going to turn this into a riot, we're prepared. 
Jesus says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. I think what Jesus, I mean, why, why he said that was, you know, you had so many chances and you, you know, you could have, you, you know, you could have gotten me, but because I'm in charge of this story, it wasn't, it wasn't time. How you think you're in charge of this story. But I had this all timed perfectly. That's why he goes on, but this is your hour. Now it's time. It's like he, he is surrendering to them now. This is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. I underline that because I think I want that to be a personal lesson. I mean, we can all testify that we love Jesus. We sing songs. We really do love him. We are grateful for what he's done for us. But I wonder how many of us kind of follow him at a distance, especially when we're with different groups of people. You know, oh, we love you, Jesus, but I'm not going to come on too strong because you know so-and-so. How many of us kind of shy away and kind of in the background are not willing to make our stand. Why? Because Peter kept to a distance. Why? Well, because was he going to be next? Was He was fearful for his life. Um, is this a self-problem here? And that's always something. I love you, Jesus, but I care about myself here. And I have to be careful about me. Protect me. Do what's best for me. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, I think as Jesus passed through, and I think Peter kind of thought that the danger was gone, and he's probably getting a little chilled himself, so he seated himself by the fire with, with everybody else and a servant girl was seated there and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. I don't think he ever expected a servant girl. I don't think he ever thought because he kind of kept his distance and now with this group of people, I mean, Jesus was gone now so he felt a little safer and and then you have a servant girl that identifies him, and he denied a woman. I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Other gospels said that he had, other, he had a few other choice words. So he's mad. He's upset, probably scared to death, and he lets it fly. But look, just as he was cussing up a storm, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. That had to be a look like no other. And I don't think it was a look of disgust or I warned you, that kind of thing. I think it was a look of disappointment, a look of love because I love you so much and I did warn you and you did not heed what I said. 
And I wonder, goodness, I wonder how many times he looks at me like that. You know, we read the story and, you know, you think, well, Peter had it coming to him. And they think, yeah, but when we disappoint him, when we don't follow through, when maybe we might, even though we don't want to say it, are ashamed of the gospel and we keep a distance because we're afraid of what someone might say or think of us. I think, does he look at me thinking, oh, I'm so disappointed. I expected different from her. I love her so much and I want the best for her. Then Peter remembered. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. It sounds like that was pretty instantaneous, don't you? It's like you heard that rooster and he remembered and he was out of there and weeping so because he knew what he did. See, this is why Jesus said to him, I'm praying for you. And I want you to know that when you turn back, see, his faith faltered. It didn't fall. Peter did not leave here and say, I want nothing more to do to him. This is too hard. I mean, I am quitting this business. I'm going back fishing. It's a whole lot easier out there. Instead, he went out and wept bitterly because he was so sorry. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he later reinstates him. He uses Peter in such a unique and wonderful way. But that's why he says to Peter, when you come back, I want you to take this story and I want you to tell them that. I want you to tell them what happened to you. I want you to tell them that there is no sin that I can't forgive. That if they repent, that I am just that way that I will cleanse them from all unrighteousness and I will remember their sin no more. You go tell them, Peter, because you have lived that. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. So, okay, here we, here we go. These three verses, they blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. I went back to Mark 14. Mark is a little more explicit. He, he goes into detail. They spit at him. They smacked him around. You know, they socked him in the face, you know, saying, okay, now who just hit you? Those, those three verses are just really terrible. I mean, here, here the most glorious thing is happening. Our Savior is ready to fulfill his mission. It couldn't be more glorious. And yet it is in the worst of sin. You're seeing sin at its fullness. The irony of that what Jesus came to do, he is experiencing sin at its worst right here. And this is why he came. You know, I always say, I, I just so enjoy Charles Spurgeon, and he had such an answer for this verse. Because this verse, as tough it is, is as horrific as it is on Jesus, believe it or not, it was victorious. Because what could have happened? You know, 
Here they are blinding, blindfolding him, and they're mocking him, saying prophesy. I mean, he could have he told everyone the number of hairs that they have on their head. He knows exactly who hit him. He knows everything. And you know, the natural human nature is to yank off that blindfold. So Spurgeon just helped me to see. It was such a victorious time. Because yet, even though he had every resource available to him, they did not. He... He wouldn't. He, they could not make him get angry and bitter. They couldn't do it after after all that. They they couldn't get him to get so mad. They could not destroy his mercy, his love, his grace. They couldn't destroy. They could not destroy that. They couldn't cause him to think about himself. They couldn't cause him to say, hey, you know what? Do you, do you, do you want me to show you and prove to you who I am? No, you know, I think right then, you know, you've heard the song, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Haven't you heard that old gospel song? It's really humbling, isn't it, to think that while he's going through this, and instead of letting them get to him, he's thinking about you and me. And that, and that is what keeps enabling him to take every step further to that cross. And, and of course, that verse in Hebrews that we all know, that he endured the cross because he knew the joy that awaited him. And they could not get him to say, you know what, I've had it. If you're gonna if you're gonna act like this and you don't recognize what I am here to do, then I'm out of here. But no, he was determined to follow through with the work for sinners like you and I. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I, and if I asked you, you would not answer. This is one of those times that Jesus is thinking, I've been doing that for three years. And I know that you've got this all cut and dried ready. And so I am just not even going to go there. Because you won't believe me. And you won't answer me because I've given you so many ample opportunities. But he does insert this. It's like he's saying, but I want you to know, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. I think that was Jesus' way of saying, someday... Someday you are going to be so sorry. Someday you are going to recognize me for who I really am. And you had the opportunity and the chance. And you spit in my face. It's kind of like uh, someday you're going to stand before me and I'm going to be your judge. (laughs) Tables will have turned. They all asked, are you then the son of God? 
And his simple reply, no flowery words, no long paragraphs of explanation, all he said was, you are right in saying that. You are right in saying I am. And then they said, why do you need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. See, now we're going to go to the Roman ruler who's going to be able to issue the death decree on a cross. This is what we want. And they began to accuse him, saying, now when you read these accusations, I'll tell you, if this doesn't show you what an evil heart will do, I mean, they are lying through their teeth. But they think they are pushing all the right buttons to get to Pilate. So when they say, oh, we have found this man subverting our nation, in other words, undermining the authority of our nation, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. I'm thinking, what are you smoking? Because he, he would never undermine the Romans. He, would, he said just the opposite, pay to Caesar what Caesar's. I mean, they are, this is just a downright lie. But then they also say, oh, and he claims to be Christ, a king. He thought for sure that Pilate would be threatened by that. Oh, no, can't have that. Oh, let's get rid of him. Get the cross out. But that didn't happen, did it? That fast. Look at So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because I think, I think that Pilate looked at Jesus and after all the mockery and the, and the punching in the face and, and you know, it's, it's night, he's tired. I think Pilate was looking at him saying, and that's a king? I don't, I'm not too worried about him. I'm not too, I'm not too threatened and scared of him. And so, Pilate announced to the chief priest, because Jesus answered, yes, it is as you say. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. In other words, you know what? I, none of that's getting to me. He, I, I don't think he's trouble. I don't think he's a trouble rouser. Just look at him. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. Now, I don't know about you, but I underlined that because they thought, that is true. He did stir up people all over Judea by his teaching. Because that's what the gospel does. That's why I asked you in your questions. The gospel better stir you up. When you hear the gospel story, you better be confronted with yourself. And you see yourself the way you truly are. And all of a sudden, you start to feel a guilt, a conviction. And that, I would say, would be a stirring in your soul. So that was a true statement, except not the way they meant it. But Jesus does stir us up. He's supposed to. And if he hasn't, then maybe you better think about it more. He started in Galilee, they said, and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. I think when he heard the word Galilee, he thought, ooh, good. 
when he heard, when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. I think he thought, good, this monkey's off my back. I can send him to Herod. He's a Galilean. Let Herod deal with this. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. You know, he's not stupid. He, he's been listening. He's been hearing about what Jesus has been doing. Now, there's something quite, quite interesting about Herod. Um, Herod is not his name. It's a title. And we know that this particular Herod was Herod Antipas. His, his father was Herod the Great. And they're kind of complicated because they're Jews and yet they're raised in Roman culture. So I call them a complicated mess. But they're really, they're really the king of the Jews, but yet they will do anything for Rome. So they're so two-faced. And all they really care about is making a name for themselves in the history books. Let's see, who is greater? Herod the Great, I'm Herod Antipas, and they all want to get a notch in their belt for recognition. Now Herod of Antipas, he's already had a pretty big one. He's the one that, that killed John the Baptist. And we know that whole story. You know, he divorces his wife, marries his brother's wife, and John the Baptist calls him on it. They think it'd be a whole lot easier to get rid of the person that's making him feel guilty instead of dealing with their guilt. Let's get rid of the person who's making us feel guilty. And off goes the head of John the Baptist. Big notch in his belt. But he's also been hearing about Jesus. And it says right there that he was greatly pleased. He wanted... Says for what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied, he asked him many questions. <laughs> but I love it. Jesus saw right through his phoniness. And so Jesus gave him no answer, not a word, not even a sense. This guy's just playing with, he just wants to be entertained. Oh, show me a trick. And Jesus won't answer to that. Well, you don't do that to Herod. You know, I'm sure he's about as ticked as they come because Jesus refused to answer him. It said the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. You know, I kind of thought Herod said, okay, you're not going to do your tricks for me. Well, I'm still going to be entertained by what I'm going to do to you. So I can laugh at you, I can mock you, dress you in a nice elegant robe, you call yourself a king. And then they sent him back to Pilate. Verse 12, how horrible. If this doesn't show you, <laughs> that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this they had been enemies. Remember when we talked about the Pharisees and Sadducees? They too didn't, didn't particularly care for each other. But boy, did they come together when it came to trying to get rid of Jesus. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, I mean, this is where I got to give Pilate credit. He did try. Now the story ends very sadly. 
He turned into a real wuss. But, but right now, he is really trying hard to get these people to come to their senses. He called together all the priests, the rulers, and the people and said, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined, I've examined him in your presence. I've found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Did you wonder why, if he's done nothing, why do you have to punish him? But again, he's just trying to appease the people by saying, maybe if, I, if we just beat him to a pulp, that that will be sufficient because his conscience was bothering him. I can't convict him to death. There's no reason for it. And by the way, this brutal beating was the kind of beating, the scourging, that those metal pieces were on the edges. With one voice they cried, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. I mean, I'm sure you've heard sermons on this too, but just to give you an idea of what that means, is that when you look at Barabbas, you're looking at a terrorist face to face who has no value for life, will murder at the drop of a hat, and it just shows what their hatred is doing. They are not even thinking straight because by releasing Barabbas, I mean, their lives are going to be in danger. Who's to say Barabbas isn't going back to his old ways? Waiting to release Jesus, Pilate appealing to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? See, again, he's trying to appeal to their reason. What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But the loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. That is a sad sentence. They warmed down. They wore him down. And I'm telling you, a soul without Jesus in it, without that power source, as powerful as what Pilate was as far as his status and his position, he can be wore down. And he did get wore down, even though he knew. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. So he released Barabbas. He took the one that they asked for, and he surrendered them. Now, this, this just jumped off at the page and surrendered Jesus to their will. I mean, yeah, physically speaking, he, 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 he felt like he was just given in. He was given in, and yep, to their will, okay, that's what you want. But what do we really know? I mean, when, when I think of 
the song, I Surrender All. I just, I think of, now obviously I, when I say this, all to Jesus I surrender, but I'm sure that this was going through his mind. Lord, I give myself to thee. Now fill me with your love and power and let your blessing fall on me. I think right then and there, you know, it says that Pilate surrendered him to the Jews' will. But this is when Jesus was saying, I'm giving you my all here. But boy, I'm, I know you will fill me with your love and with your power. And I know that the blessings that are going to come because of all this, the salvation for mankind, your and my redemption is going to, it's going to be supplied. Jesus did that for you and me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this lesson. And if we are not wowed, if we are reading this because it's a story that we've heard so many times, and if we don't have hair raised up on the back of our neck, if we don't feel chills going through our body, if we are not wowed or awed by this story, then we, then we take ourselves, we think way too much of ourselves. We, we think way too highly of ourselves. We don't really see ourselves the way we are, the way we truly are, and we don't see our Savior for who he really is either, willing to leave heaven for us. So Father, I just pray that as we went through these, these verses tonight, that there were maybe some things that we never looked at and saw before. But most of all, we are just awed again by your marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. And to think you did it freely for every one of us, for us who choose to believe it. We cannot say thank you enough, but mostly may you see our thanks by the way we live our life. Father, may we truly hear Jesus because he said it twice. Pray, stay connected to me that you do not fall into temptation and miss the blessing. Father, help us to always be in tune with you so that we do not make the mistake of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and daring to follow you. We pray this all in our Savior's name.